This podcast was produced in partnership with Post Industrial Media. Post Industrial produces original journalism in podcast, print, online, and video, covering communities in transition around the world. Join our community today by visiting postindustrial.com. Be aware, this episode contains a scene of intense violence, gunshots, and some swearing. Okay, here we go. On June 15, 2020, anti-racist protesters in Albuquerque, New Mexico, gathered around a statue. It was the statue of Spanish conquistador Juan de Añate. It added a distinctly New Mexican flavor to racial justice protests. Those protests had broken out around the country after the police killing of George Floyd. New Mexico has a long colonial history, and one of the largest per capita Native American populations in the country. Oñate had an ugly history of persecuting Native Americans, including a massacre that killed hundreds. The protesters were there to rip down the statue. They put chains around it and went after it with pickaxes. But there were also some visitors not welcomed by the protesters. Members of the New Mexico Civil Guard militia showed up with guns and paramilitary gear. So did one other guy with a gun, Stephen Baca. Baca's in his early 30s, worked as a skip tracer, and once ran for Albuquerque City Council. In his campaign, he claimed the city was becoming a, quote, third world country. Scuffles broke out at the protest. In video, you first see Baca appear to pull a woman to the ground. He's then pushed out by other protesters. Some follow Baca down the street. One protester fights with him, and Baca pulls out a gun. Another appears to hit at Baca's hands with a skateboard. Then, Baca fires four shots, and one of the protesters crumples to the pavement. He lives, but is badly injured. When we published this podcast, Baca was awaiting trial for the shooting. 1,800 miles away in Washington, D.C., attorney Mary McCord heard about it and started making a plan. In New Mexico, she saw a tragedy. She also saw an opening to take the militia to court. The New Mexico Civil Guard self-deployed in their full military kits with their AR-15s and other assault-style rifles and their extra magazines, etc., ostensibly to protect against the statute being torn down by the protesters. And their presence, you know, heightens the tensions and the prospects for violence because we're talking about really, really heavily armed people in the midst of what's already a contentious demonstration where people have opposing viewpoints. Her case in New Mexico will be a crucial test of her broader campaign against militias across the U.S. And militia leaders around the country are watching because McCord is trying to put them out of business. I'm Heath Rusin, and this is Extremely American, a look inside militias and other far-right groups that are trying to remake America in their absolutist image. Episode 10, Taking Militias to Court. Mary McCord is a no-nonsense former federal prosecutor. After spending nearly 20 years at the U.S. Attorney's Office for D.C., she's no stranger to taking on tough characters. So I've done a bit of everything, right? I've prosecuted sexual offenses. I've prosecuted violent crimes. I've prosecuted drug offenses, gun offenses. 
She's also prosecuted federal crimes. Including child sexual exploitation, terrorism crimes, major transnational crimes. McCord's got a very I've-seen-everything demeanor, and she's earned it. I mean, she helped put the mastermind of the Benghazi attack in prison. That was the one where a mob overran a U.S. consulate in Libya, killing an ambassador and three other Americans. These days, she leads Georgetown Law's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection. And in that role, she's been going after domestic extremism for the last five years. Her main target has been militias. It started back in 2017 with the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. We also saw self-professed militias coming in full military garb with black jackets and camouflage and helmets and combat boots and AR-15s and extra magazines of of ammunition and sidearms to boot and walkie-talkies and radios. McCord was disturbed. What she saw were private armed citizens projecting authority and holding themselves out as being there to protect the First Amendment rights of the protesters, but that was really mostly a guise for their real desire to come out and engage in violent confrontations with counter-protesters. That rally ended with a neo-Nazi ramming his car into left-wing protesters, killing Heather Heyer and injuring many others. And when I saw that, I immediately thought, well, this is domestic terrorism. McCord sued a bunch of the militias and white supremacists who were there that day. And she won. The militias were banned from ever returning to Charlottesville as a group. So when she saw what happened in Albuquerque, she reached out to another former federal prosecutor. Raul Torres, R-A-U-L-T-O-R-R-E-Z. I am the second judicial district attorney here in Bernalillo County, New Mexico. Bernalillo County is where Albuquerque is located. Torres said he welcomed the help of McCord and Georgetown University. There isn't really much of a playbook in terms of how we go about preventing these types of groups, these extremist groups from engaging in this activity. And Georgetown had that experience. McCord works to get states to enforce anti-militia laws, ones that are often forgotten, even by prosecutors. She says every state outlaws private military action which she says means a lot of militia activity, is illegal. But she's fighting long-held assumptions, mainly that the First and Second Amendments protect militias. Well, that's crazy. The First Amendment doesn't protect violence. It doesn't protect incitement to imminent lawless activity. The Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms for individual self-defense. It doesn't protect uh, the right to arm yourself as as your own private military and go out and either usurp law enforcement functions or engage in, you know, offensive paramilitary activity against uh, your ideological enemies. As McCord and Torres talked about possible legal strategies against the New Mexico Civil Guard, Torres says the issue became more urgent. He saw the militia continue acting as private security, even after the shooting. As protests continued to occur in the community, we became more and more aware that this group and other groups were actively engaged in a kind of unlawful policing and paramilitary activity that was extremely disturbing. Why unlawful? Tourism Accord points to New Mexico law. In New Mexico, it's illegal to train people with firearms that will be used in, quote, furtherance of a civil disorder. The state constitution also says the military, quote, shall always be in strict subordination to the civil power. As in, any military has to answer to the state government. It's also a crime for private citizens to, quote, exercise the functions of a peace officer. 
So no playing cop out in the streets, unless you're a cop. Based on all of that, Tourism Accord sued the New Mexico Civil Guard. The militia may not have done the shooting in Albuquerque, Baca did, but McCord says that does not mean they're blameless. We believe that their presence there gave others license to feel like they could use their weapons in ways that they, they certainly heightened the tensions that led to the use of the weapons. The suit essentially asks a judge to rule the New Mexico Civil Guard can't operate as an armed militia anymore. No money, no punishment, just don't be a militia anymore. They say the militia's armed presence at the rally is contrary to the New Mexico law against private militaries and assuming the duties of law enforcement. Bryce Provance was the militia's leader at the time of the shooting, and he strongly disagrees with the suit's claims. We did train and we gave our organization a name, but we didn't train in law enforcement tactics. We didn't train in like real military stuff. It was more search and rescue, you know, and first aid and things like that. Before starting his militia, Provance spent much of his adult life in prison for a variety of crimes, including armed robbery. There, he was part of a neo-Nazi gang. Now, he says he rejects that ideology. I did a lot of bad things in my younger years. But he admits to still being part of the neo-Confederate movement. Just to be clear, that's a movement that venerates the side in the Civil War that supported slavery. Provance says he started his militia out of frustration with state government. He says legislators were passing unconstitutional laws. I was like, well, you know, we should start a militia organization that goes back to the original meaning and forms of the word militia, where like revolutionary times all the way up to the early 1900s, where the militia was pretty much the local guys in an area who got together, they drilled, they protected their communities. They gave first aid, you know, any type of help that the community needed, you could call on them. Because back then, there wasn't a large police force. Like a lot of militia leaders, Provence says he looks to the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution as their permission to operate. You know, the one about guns. But also about militias. Maybe. It reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. Okay, so it's arguably a run-on sentence, and I have quibbles with all the commas. It's like it was written to be completely inscrutable, and cause the very arguments we're having today. Torres thinks a lot of the interest in militias comes with novel interpretations of the Constitution, and a fascination with the Revolutionary War. But he doesn't see today's militias as the Minutemen of old. A lot of this is, is rooted in a misunderstanding or just a lack of awareness of our own history in this country. And, and frankly, a, rom- a romantic view of what it, being a member of a militia has meant over time. And for Tourism Accord, there's another major problem with militia members' reading of the amendment. There already is a well-regulated militia in every state. The National Guard represents the organized militia in this country. The National Guard falls under the command of the governor and can be called up to national duty in national emergencies. Torres sees a dark future if the U.S. continues to let what he considers unsanctioned militaries operate. If you don't follow that established process, then you will end up with not just one private militia, but multiple private militias with competing interpretations of the Constitution that are heavily armed, 
that are at odds with one another, and they, if they are left unchecked, will start to resolve their ideological differences by violence. Since Mary McCord won that lawsuit in Charlottesville, she's been on something of a letter-writing campaign. She's been sending letters to attorneys general and district attorneys across the country. She explains her legal arguments against militias and shows them that they too can crack down on them. This private militia activity is not authorized by federal or state law. It's not protected by the Second Amendment. The Supreme Court's been clear about that since ever since 1886, reaffirmed by Justice Scalia writing for the court in 2008. The New Mexico lawsuit is the highest profile part of her campaign. Aside from being a novel case, it's also a novel approach for a prosecutor. It's one Torres hopes other prosecutors will follow. Traditionally, you think of prosecutors as almost exclusively working in the criminal world. And many prosecutors, either by statute or just by custom, think of themselves as the chief enforcers of criminal law, conspiracy, murder, sexual assault, acts of violence. Very rarely have prosecutors been willing to use the full scope of their civil authority and their civil power. One of the reasons Torres and McCord are using civil rather than criminal court to fight the New Mexico Civil Guard is that there's simply a lower threshold of proof. When prison isn't on the line, you need a preponderance of evidence rather than beyond a reasonable doubt. Torres says he's more interested in the effect than any punishment. One of the principal objectives of the lawsuit is to stop this growing movement before we cross a threshold where we suddenly find ourselves um, engaged in increasing levels of political violence uh, organized by you know, rival political ideologies, each with their own private military forces. Because once we go down that very dark and dangerous road, it's very, very difficult to recover and reestablish the basic forms of representative democracy and self-government. Lawyers for the New Mexico Civil Guard tried to get the case thrown out of court in September. But McCord and Torres had their first win when the judge ruled it could move forward. Now, it's on to trial for what could be a landmark case. The trial has not yet been scheduled. In the meantime, McCord has opened another front in her battle against domestic extremism. The committee will come to order. On Capitol Hill. Thank you. Ms. McCord, you are recognized now for five minutes to give us an oral presentation of your testimony. Chairman Cleaver, Ranking Member Hill, and distinguished members of the subcommittee, thank you for inviting me to testify about some of the challenges of investigating the financing of domestic terrorism and extremism. McCord is trying to get Congress to take domestic terrorism as seriously as foreign terrorism. Since the attacks of September 11, 2001, the federal government has been much more focused on foreign terrorism than the domestic threat. But the FBI believes domestic extremists pose the same threat as ISIS. When I approach domestic extremist violence now, I see a lot of parallels to the tactics and techniques of foreign terrorist organizations like ISIS, particularly in the use of social media and the internet and private chat rooms to recruit, propagandize, monetize, and plan. And she thinks a lot of Americans are ripe for recruitment right now. People who are vulnerable for one reason or another, they're un unhappy with their own 
situation in life, economically, socially, whatever it is, they're worried with racial justice that it's a zero sum. And if you're a white person, if there's more racial justice for people of color, that means you're going to lose something. This is the kind of propaganda that spreads so quickly over social media. And then we see people take action in the real world like we saw during the insurrection. But right now, there is no law in the book specifically outlawing domestic terrorism. It makes it harder to investigate unfolding plots, as opposed to violence that's already happened. McCord has drafted legislation that would make it easier for federal law enforcement to investigate groups they suspect of domestic terrorism. As you might imagine, it faces an uphill battle in a sharply divided Congress. During McCord's congressional testimony, Republican Representative Roger Williams pushed her to clarify a key point of debate. Uh, Ms. McCord, my question to you would be, I would like to get your thoughts uh, on what you believe is the appropriate balance between free speech, privacy, and security. Thank you, Congressman. Um, the Supreme Court's been very clear that violence and incitement to imminent violence is not protected by the First Amendment. And so I think that's the, a good place to start when we talk about drawing the lines. But McCord says she's gotten bipartisan interest on her legislation. And overall, her strategy is working. The militias McCord sued after Charlottesville agreed never to return to the city as a group. That was back in 2018. And we don't know of any violations of that so far. If they do violate that court order, they could be prosecuted criminally or civilly. Militia leaders have taken notice of McCord. I think she can kiss my rosy red ass. That's Christian Yingling, the Pennsylvania volunteer militia leader from episode one. He's one of the leaders now banned from coming to Charlottesville with a militia. When I asked him about McCord's campaign to get states and cities to enforce anti-militia laws, he got pretty animated. I dare you, Mary. I dare you to come for me. Because, uh uh-uh, I stay on the right side of the law. Plain and simple. Yingling left his militia after Charlottesville. He started his current one from scratch, but he's struggling to get his numbers up. And even the New Mexico lawsuit has already had an effect. After it was filed, Bryce Provance left town, moved to Washington State. His militia didn't last long without him. Well, I think the Civil Guard's gone. That's a thing of the past. And Provance said the New Mexico lawsuit has bigger potential. If the lawsuit doesn't go your way, what do you think that's going to do to militias in general? Oh, I think it'll completely abolish any sort of militia, which is kind of a scary thought because historically, that's the, this nation's always had that. You know what I mean? There's always been a group of men in a a city or surrounding area that has been there to protect or serve as an auxiliary force to the military and have some semblance of training to join up with the military in times of uh, emergency or national crises. And uh, yeah, if the lawsuit's won by the prosecution, then that's going to effectively end the uh, militia cause of the Second Amendment. It's debatable, to say the least, that there's been this ever-present force of armed men at the ready throughout U.S. history. Anyway, as for McCord's goals... Okay, I promise this is the last question, but at the end of all this, um, do you hope to put most militias out of business? Um, I, you know, I am not a one-woman show, show here, and I, I don't have resources to do that. I would definitely like to see a United States of America with no private militias. I would love for people who are mission-oriented to have a mission, but it shouldn't be a mission to end our democracy.
so much for listening to Extremely American. We really appreciate your support. And if you're looking for more, we'll have some bonus material coming out. So check back for that. Extremely American was created by me, Heath Drusen. Story editing by Morgan Springer. Mixing and sound engineering by James Dawson. Original music by Micah Huang. Additional music from Artlist. Kim Palmero is editor-in-chief and CEO of Post-Industrial Media. Thanks also to Boise State Public Radio, the exclusive public radio sponsor for this podcast. I hope you'll take a second to rate and review this podcast on whatever app you're using to listen. It helps other people find us. This podcast is made possible through the Candida Fund. Learn more at K-E-N-D-E-D-A dot org. And from the Joyce Foundation, JoyceFDN.org. With support from the Forbes Funds at ForbesFunds.org. For photos from this series and some additional reporting, head over to postindustrial.com. This podcast was produced in partnership with Post-Industrial Media. Post-Industrial covers people, culture, and ideas for post-industrial communities around the world. Visit postindustrial.com to learn how you can join the post-industrial community.